Volume Three, Chapter Six of Cecilia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Dawn. Cecilia, Memoirs of an Heiress by Francis Burney, Volume Three, Chapter Six, A Man of Genius. The next morning, as soon as breakfast was over. Cecilia went in a chair to Swallow Street. She inquired for Miss Belfield and was told to go upstairs. But what was her amazement to meet just coming out of the room into which she was entering, young Delville? They both started, and Cecilia, from the seeming strangeness of her situation, felt a confusion with which she had hitherto been unacquainted. But Delville, presently recovering from his surprise, said to her, with an expressive smile. How good is Miss Beverley thus to visit the sick, and how much better might I have had the pleasure of seeing Mister Belfield, had I but by prescience known her design and deferred my own inquiries till he had been revived by hers. And then, bowing and wishing her good morning, he glided past her. Cecilia, notwithstanding the openness and purity of her intentions, was so much disconcerted by this unexpected meeting and pointed speech. That she had not the presence of mind to call him back and clear herself, and the various interrogatories and railleries which had already passed between them upon the subject of Mister Belfield made her suppose that what he had formerly suspected, he would now think confirmed, and conclude that all her assertions of indifference proceeded merely from that readiness at hypocrisy upon particular subjects of which he had openly accused her whole sex. This circumstance and this apprehension took from her for a while all interest in the errand upon which she came, but the benevolence of her heart soon brought it back. When, upon going into the room, she saw her new favorite in tears. "What is the matter?" cried she tenderly. "No new affliction, I hope, has happened. Your brother is not worse." "No, madam, he is much the same. I was not then crying for him." "For what then?" Tell me, acquaint me with your sorrows, and assure yourself you tell them to a friend. I was crying, madam, to find so much goodness in the world, when I thought there was so little, to find that I have some chance of being again happy when I thought I was miserable for ever. Two whole years have I spent in nothing but unhappiness, and I thought there was nothing else to be had. But yesterday, madam, brought me you, with every promise of nobleness and protection, and today. A friend of my brother's has behaved so generously that even my brother has listened to him and almost consented to be obliged to him. And have you already known so much sorrow, said Cecilia, that this little dawn of prosperity should wholly overpower your spirits? Gentle, amiable girl, may the future recompense you for the past, and may Mister Albany's kind wishes be fulfilled in the reciprocation of our comfort and affection. They then entered into a conversation which the sweetness of Cecilia, and the gratitude of Miss Belfield, soon rendered interesting, friendly, and unreserved. And in a very short time, whatever was essential in the story or situation of the latter, was fully communicated. She gave, however, a charge the most earnest that her brother should never be acquainted with the confidence she had made. Her father, who had been dead only two years, was a linen draper in the city. He had six daughters, of whom herself was the youngest, and only one son. This son, Mister Belfield, was alike the darling of his father, mother, and sisters, 
He was brought up at Eton. No expense was spared in his education. Nothing was denied that could make him happy. With an excellent understanding, he had uncommon quickness of parts, and his progress in his studies was rapid and honorable. His father, though he always meant him for his successor in his business, heard of his improvement with rapture, often saying, "'My boy will be the ornament of the city. He will be the best scholar in any shop in London.' He was soon, however, taught another lesson. When at the age of sixteen he returned home and was placed in the shop, instead of applying his talents as his father had expected to trade, he both despised and abhorred the name of it. When serious, treating it with contempt, when gay, with derision. He was seized also with a most ardent desire to finish his education, like those of his schoolfellows who left Eton at the same time, at one of the universities. And after many difficulties this petition, at the intercession of his mother, was granted, old Mr. Belfield telling him he hoped a little more learning would give him a little more sense, and that when he became a finished student he would not only know the true value of business, but understand how to get money, and make a bargain better than any man whatsoever within Temple Bar. These expectations, equally short-sighted, were also equally fallacious with the former. The son again returned, and returned, as his father had hoped, a finished student. But far from being more tractable or better disposed for application to trade, his aversion to it now was more stubborn, and his opposition more hardy than ever. The young men of fashion with whom he had formed friendships at school, or at the university, and with whom from the indulgence of his father he was always able to vie in expense, and from the indulgence of nature to excel in capacity, earnestly sought the continuance of his acquaintance, and courted and coveted the pleasure of his conversation. But though he was now totally disqualified for any other society, he lost all delight in their favor from fear that they should discover his abode, and sedulously endeavored to avoid even occasionally meeting them, lest any of his family should at the same time approach him. For of his family, though wealthy, worthy, and independent, he was now so utterly ashamed that the mortification the most cruel he could receive was to be asked his address, or told he should be visited. Tired at length of evading the inquiries made by some, and forcing faint laughs at the detection made by others, he privately took a lodging at the west end of the town, to which he thenceforward directed all his friends, and where, under various pretenses, he contrived to spend the greatest part of his time. In all his expensive deceits and frolics, his mother was his never-failing confidant and assistant, for when she heard that the companions of her son were men of fashion, some born to titles, others destined to high stations, she concluded he was in the certain road to honor and profit, and frequently distressed herself without ever repining, in order to enable him to preserve upon equal terms connections which she believed so conducive to his future grandeur. In this wild and unsettled manner he passed some time, struggling incessantly against the authority of his father, privately abetted by his mother, and constantly aided and admired by his sisters, till, sick of so desultory a way of life, he entered himself a volunteer in the army. How soon he grew tired of this change has already been related, as well as his reconciliation with his father and his becoming a student at the temple, 
for the father now grew as weary of opposing as the young man of being opposed. Here, for two or three years, he lived in happiness uninterrupted. He extended his acquaintance among the great, by whom he was no sooner known than caressed and admired, and he frequently visited his family, which, though he blushed to own in public, he affectionately loved in private. His profession indeed was but little in his thoughts, successive engagements occupying almost all his hours. Delighted with the favor of the world, and charmed to find his presence seemed the signal for entertainment, he soon forgot the uncertainty of his fortune, and the inferiority of his rank. The law grew more and more fatiguing, pleasure became more and more alluring, and by degrees he had not a day unappropriated to some party or amusement, voluntarily consigning the few leisure moments his gay circle afforded him to the indulgence of his fancy, in some hasty compositions and verse which were handed about in manuscript, and which contributed to keep him in fashion. Such was his situation at the death of his father. A new scene was then opened to him, and for some time he hesitated what course to pursue. Old Mr. Belfield, though he lived in great affluence, left not behind him any considerable fortune, after the portions of his daughters, to each of whom he bequeathed two thousand pounds, had been deducted from it. But his stock and trade was great, and his business was prosperous and lucrative. His son, however, did not merely want application and fortitude to become his successor, but skill and knowledge. His deliberation, therefore, was hasty, and his resolution improvident. He determined to continue at the temple himself, while the shop, which he could by no means afford to relinquish, should be kept up by another name, and the business of it be transacted by an agent, hoping thus to secure and enjoy its emoluments without either the trouble or the humiliation of attendance. But this scheme, like most others that have their basis in vanity, ended in nothing but mortification and disappointment. The shop, which under old Mr. Belfield had been flourishing and successful, and enriched himself and all his family, could now scarce support the expenses of an individual. Without a master, without that diligent attention to its prosperity which the interest of possession alone can give, and the authority of a principal alone can enforce, it quickly lost its fame for the excellence of its goods, and soon after its customers from the report of its declension. The produce, therefore, diminished every month. He was surprised, he was provoked, he was convinced he was cheated, and that his affairs were neglected. But though he threatened from time to time to inquire into the real state of the business and investigate the cause of its decay, he felt himself inadequate to the task, and now first lamented that early contempt of trade which, by preventing him acquiring some knowledge of it while he had youth and opportunity, made him now ignorant what redress to seek, though certain of imposition and injury. But yet, however disturbed by alarming suggestions in his hours of retirement, no alteration was made in the general course of his life. He was still the darling of his friends, and the leader in all parties, and still, though his income was lessened, his expenses increased. Such were his circumstances at the time Cecilia first saw him at the house of Mr. Monckton, from which, two days after her arrival in town, he was himself summoned, by an information that his agent had suddenly left the kingdom. The fatal consequence of this fraudulent elopement was immediate bankruptcy. His spirits, however, did not yet fail him, 
as he had never been the nominal master of the shop, he escaped all dishonor from its ruin, and was satisfied to consign what remained to the mercy of the creditors, so that his own name should not appear in the Gazette. Three of his sisters were already extremely well married to reputable tradesmen. The two elder of those who were yet single were settled with two of those who were married, and Henrietta, the youngest, resided with her mother, who had a comfortable annuity and a small house in Paddington. Bereft thus through vanity and imprudence of all the long labors of his father, he was now compelled to think seriously of some actual method of maintenance since his mother, though willing to sacrifice to him even the nourishment which sustained her, could do for him but little, and that little he had too much justice to accept. The law, even to the most diligent and successful, is extremely slow of profit, and whatever from his connections and abilities might be hoped hereafter, at present, required an expense which he was no longer able to support. It remained, then, to try his influence with his friends, among the great and the powerful. His canvas proved extremely honorable. Everyone promised him something, and all seemed delighted to have an opportunity of serving him. Pleased with finding the world so much better than report had made it, he now saw the conclusion of his difficulties in the prospect of a place at court. Belfield, with half the penetration with which he was gifted, would have seen in any other man the delusive idleness of expectations no better founded. But though discernment teaches us the folly of others, experience, singly, can teach us our own. He flattered himself that his friends had been more wisely selected than the friends of those who in similar circumstances had been beguiled, and he suspected not the fraud of his vanity till he found his invitations daily slacken, and that his time was at his own command. All his hopes now rested upon one friend and patron, Mr. Floyer, an uncle of Sir Robert Floyer, a man of power in the royal household, with whom he had lived in great intimacy, and who at this period had the disposal of a place which he solicited. The only obstacle that seemed in his way was from Sir Robert himself, who warmly exerted his interest in favor of a friend of his own. Mr. Floyer, however, assured Belfield of the preference, and only begged his patience till he could find some opportunity of appeasing his nephew. And this was the state of his affairs at the time of his quarrel at the Opera House. Already declared opponents of each other, Sir Robert felt double wrath that for him Cecilia should reject his civilities, while Belfield, suspecting he presumed upon his known dependence on his uncle to affront him, felt also double indignation at the haughtiness of his behavior. And thus, Slight as seemed to the world the cause of their contest, each had private motives of animosity that served to stimulate revenge. The very day after this duel, Mr. Floyer wrote him word that he was now obliged in common decency to take the part of his nephew, and therefore had already given the place to the friend he had recommended. This was the termination of his hopes, and the signal of his ruin. To the pain of his wound he became insensible from the superior pain of this unexpected miscarriage. Yet his pride still enabled him to disguise his distress, and to see all the friends whom this accident induced to seek him, while from the sprightliness he forced in order to conceal his anguish, he appeared to them more lively and more entertaining than ever. 
But these efforts, when left to himself and to nature, only sunk him the deeper in sadness. He found an immediate change in his way of life was necessary, yet could not brook to make it in sight of those with whom he had so long lived in all the brilliancy of equality. A high principle of honor, which still, in the midst of his gay career, had remained uncorrupted, had scrupulously guarded him from running in debt, and therefore, though of little possessed, that little was strictly his own. He now published that he was going out of town for the benefit of purer air, discharged his surgeon, took a gay leave of his friends, and trusting no one with his secret but his servant, was privately conveyed to mean and cheap lodgings in Swallow Street. Here, shut up from every human being he had formerly known, he proposed to remain till he grew better, and then again to seek his fortune in the army. His present situation, however, was little calculated to contribute to his recovery. The dismission of the surgeon, the precipitation of his removal, the inconveniencies of his lodgings, and the unseasonable deprivation of long customary indulgencies were unavoidable delays of his amendment, while the mortification of his present disgrace and the bitterness of his late disappointment preyed incessantly upon his mind, robbed him of rest, heightened his fever, and reduced him by degrees to a state so low and dangerous that his servant, alarmed for his life, secretly acquainted his mother with his illness and retreat. The mother, almost distracted by this intelligence, instantly with her daughter flew to his lodgings. She wished to have taken him immediately to her house at Paddington, but he had suffered so much from his first removal that he would not consent to another. She would then have called in a physician, but he refused even to see one, and she had too long given way to all his desires and opinions, to have now the force of mind for exerting the requisite authority of issuing her orders without consulting him. She begged, she pleaded indeed, and Henrietta joined in her entreaties, but sickness and vexation had not rendered him tame, though they had made him sullen. He resisted their prayers, and commonly silenced them by assurances that their opposition to the plan he had determined to pursue only inflamed his fever and retarded his recovery. The motive of an obduracy so cruel to his friends was the fear of a detection which he thought not merely prejudicial to his affairs, but dishonorable to his character. For, without betraying any symptom of his distress, he had taken a general leave of his acquaintance upon pretense of going out of town and he could ill endure to make a discovery which would at once proclaim his degradation and his deceit. Mr. Albany had accidentally broken in upon him, by mistaking his room for that of another sick person in the same house to whom his visit had been intended. But as he knew and reverenced that old gentleman, he did not much repine at his intrusion. He was not so easy when the same discovery was made by young Delville, who, chancing to meet his servant in the street, inquired concerning his master's health, and, surprising from him its real state, followed him home, where, soon certain of the change in his affairs by the change of his habitation, he wrote him a letter, in which, after apologizing for his freedom, he warmly declared that nothing could make him so happy as being favored with his commands, if, either through himself or his friends, he could be so fortunate as to do him any service. Belfield, deeply mortified at this detection of his situation, returned only a verbal answer of cold thanks, and desired he would not speak of his being in town, as he was not well enough to be seen. 
This reply gave almost equal mortification to young Delville, who continued, however, to call at the door with inquiries how he went on, though he made no further attempt to see him. Belfield, softened at length by the kindness of this conduct, determined to admit him, and he was just come from paying his first visit when he was met by Cecilia upon the stairs. His stay with him had been short, and he had taken no notice either of his change of abode or his pretense of going into the country. He had talked to him only in general terms, and upon general subjects, till he arose to depart, and then he re-urged his offers of service with so much openness and warmth that Belfield, affected by his earnestness, promised he would soon see him again, and intimated to his delighted mother and sister that he would frankly consult with him upon his affairs. Such was the tale which, with various minuter circumstances, Miss Belfield communicated to Cecilia. "'My mother,' she added, "'who never quits him, knows that you are here, madam, for she heard me talking with somebody yesterday, and she made me tell her all that had passed, and that you said you would come again this morning.' Cecilia returned many acknowledgments for this artless and unreserved communication, but could not, when it was over, forbear inquiring by what early misery she had already, though so very young, spent two years in nothing but unhappiness. "'Because,' she answered, "'when my poor father died, all our family separated, and I left everybody to go and live with my mother at Paddington, and I was never a favorite with my mother. No more indeed was anybody but my brother, for she thinks all the rest of the world only made for his sake.' so she used to deny both herself and me almost common necessaries in order to save up money to make him presents. Though, if he had known how it was done, he would only have been angry instead of taking them. However, I should have regarded nothing that had been for his benefit, for I loved him a great deal more than my own convenience. But sums that would distress us for months to save up would by him be spent in a day, and then thought of no more. Nor was that all. Oh, no, I had much greater uneasiness to suffer, for I was informed by one of my brothers-in-law how ill everything went, and that certain ruin would come to my poor brother from the treachery of his agent, and the thought of this was always preying upon my mind, for I did not dare tell it my mother, for fear it should put her out of humor, for sometimes she is not very patient, and it mattered little what any of us said to my brother, for he was too gay and too confident to believe his danger. Well, but— said Cecilia. I hope now all will go better, if your brother will consent to see a physician. Ah, madam, that is the thing I fear he will never do, because of being seen in these bad lodgings. I would kneel whole days to prevail with him, but he is unused to control, and knows not how to submit to it, and he has lived so long among the great, that he forgets he was not born as high as themselves. Oh, that he had never quitted his own family! if he had not been spoilt by ambition. He had the best heart and sweetest disposition in the world, but living always with his superiors taught him to disdain his own relations and be ashamed of us all. And yet now, in the hour of his distress, who else comes to help him? Cecilia then inquired if she wanted not assistance for herself and her mother, observing that they did not seem to have all the conveniencies to which they were entitled. "'Why, indeed, madam,' she replied with an ingenuous smile, 
When you first came here I was a little like my brother, for I was sadly ashamed to let you see how ill we lived. But now you know the worst, so I shall fret about it no more. But this cannot be your usual way of life. I fear the misfortunes of Mr. Belfield have spread ruin wider than his own. No, indeed, he took care from the first not to involve us in his hazards, for he is very generous, madam, and very noble in all his notions, and could behave to us all no better about money matters than he has ever done. But from the moment we came to this dismal place, and saw his distress, and that he was sunk so low who used to always be higher than any of us, we had a sad scene indeed. My poor mother, whose whole delight was to think that he lived like a nobleman, and who always flattered herself that he would rise to be as great as the company he kept, was so distracted with her disappointment that she would not listen to reason, but immediately discharged both our servants. She said she and I should do all the work ourselves, hired this poor room for us to live in, and sent to order a bill to be put upon her house at Paddington, for she said she would never return to it any more. "'But are you, then,' cried Cecilia, "'without any servant?' "'We have my brother's man, madam, "'and oh, he lights our fires "'and takes away some of our litters, "'and there is not much else to be done "'except sweeping the rooms, "'for we eat nothing but cold meat from the cook-shops. "'And how long is this to last?' "'Indeed I cannot tell, "'for the real truth is "'my poor mother has almost lost her senses, "'and ever since our coming here "'she has been so miserable and so complaining.' "'Then, indeed, between her and my brother, I have almost lost mine, too. "'For when she found all her hopes at an end, "'and that her darling son, instead of being rich and powerful "'and surrounded by friends and admirers, "'all trying who should do the most for him, "'was shut up by himself in this poor little lodging, "'and instead of gaining more, had spent all he was worth at first, "'with not a creature to come near him, "'though ill, though confined, though keeping his bed.' Oh, madam, had you seen my poor mother when she first cast her eyes upon him in that condition? Indeed, you could never have forgotten it. I wonder not at her disappointment, cried Cecilia, with expectations so sanguine and a son of so much merit. It might well indeed be bitter. Yes, and besides the disappointment, she is now continually reproaching herself for always complying with his humours, and assisting him to appear better than the rest of the family, though my father never approved her doing so. But she thought herself so sure of his rising, that she believed we should all thank her for it in the end. And she always used to say that he was born to be a gentleman, and what a grievous thing it would be to have him made a tradesman. I hope at least... She has not the additional misery of seeing him ungrateful for her fondness, however injudicious it may have been. Oh, no, he does nothing but comfort and cheer her. Indeed, it is very good of him, for he has owned to me in private that, but for her encouragement, he could not have run the course he has run, for he should have been obliged to enter into business, whether he had liked it or not. But my poor mother knows this, though he will not tell it her. And therefore she says that unless he gets well she will punish herself all the rest of her life and never go back to her house and never hire another servant and never eat anything but bread nor drink anything but water. Poor unhappy woman, cried Cecilia. How dearly does she pay for her imprudent and short-sighted indulgence. But surely you are not also to suffer in the same manner. No, madam, not by her fault, for she wants me to go and live with one of my sisters. 
but I would not quit her for the world. I should think myself wicked indeed to leave her now. Besides, I don't at all repine at the little hardships I go through at present, because my poor brother is in so much distress that all we save may be really turned to account. But when we lived so, hardly, only to procure him luxuries he had no right to, I must own, I used often to think it unfair, and if I had not loved him dearly, I should not have borne it so well, perhaps, as I ought. Cecilia now began to think it high time to release her new acquaintance by quitting her, though she felt herself so much interested in her affairs that every word she spoke gave her a desire to lengthen the conversation. She ardently wished to make her some present, but was restrained by the fear of offending, or of being again refused. She had, however, devised a private scheme for serving her more effectually than by the donation of a few guineas, and therefore, after earnestly begging to hear from her, if she could possibly be of any use, she told her that she should not find her confidence misplaced, and promising again to see her soon, reluctantly departed. End of chapter 6